Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. And for those who are returning as listeners, welcome back and thank you so much for your continued support. If this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome and we're really glad you found us. All of this is possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners like Evolve Her, which is Chicago's first creative co-working space and event space for women, the insurance people, a woman and minority-owned agency focused on small business health insurance, individual health insurance, and Medicare supplements, and our regular podcast home, 1871, which is Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of C Strategies, and as always, I am your host. Now, for regular listeners of the show, you might notice um, things are a little different today, and it might sound a little different because usually we record live and in person at our 1871 podcast studios, but today we're doing our first virtual recording of the broadcast via Zoom as we've uh, all had to kind of switch to a new normal given the COVID-19 crisis and all trying to find creative ways to work around it. So here we are. And I am super excited to have on this show as my first virtual Zoom guest, Sheila Nix. She's not only a longtime friend and former colleague, but she has an incredible resume that includes leadership roles on Capitol Hill, the White House, uh, and with foundations that are set on helping to bring big change. And today we're recording actually a twofer. Today is part one of our conversation where we're going to talk about the presidential campaign, uh, what's going on behind the scenes in the U.S. Senate as they've been debating COVID-19 relief bill that just passed, and also her role as a woman leading high-profile offices and missions. Part two of this interview will focus on what I like to call her day job in the middle mm-hmm. of all the other things she's doing, which is primarily centered on expanding mobile voting to the masses here in Illinois and across the country. And that would come in really handy about now. So, uh, <laughs> Sheila, welcome to the show. Thank you. And so I'm just going to, you know, tick off a little bit of background here about you, about all your years in public service and, and, and foundation work so people have a little bit of background. And it's a lot. So everyone will just have to bear with me for a moment. <laughs> so you spent um, many years on Capitol Hill serving as a chief of staff to U.S. senators including, I believe, both um, Kerry and Nelson. You later served as chief of staff to Vice President Biden on the 2012 election campaign, and then as chief of staff to Dr. Jill Biden, amazing, in the White Mm -hmm. House, and of course, serving as a senior advisor to the current campaign and uh, a national campaign surrogate. And you've also served as uh, executive director of Bono's One Campaign, which is a global advocacy campaigning organization that fights extreme poverty and preventable disease. And that takes us to today where you lead Tusk Philanthropies, which is an organization working at this intersection of technology and politics to advance mobile voting and anti-hunger programs across the country. So I'll just say, okay, wow. And um, (laughs) I'm very happy (laughs) to segue into our conversation here. So again, thanks for being our guest today, and I always say it's a real honor to call you a friend, and I love being able to showcase women like you who are helping to run the world. So before we move forward with that for our topics, I just want to say, like, how are you and your family, you know, doing during the COVID-19 crisis? So we're doing fine. I mean, luckily, everyone is 
healthy, but I do have a full house again. My youngest daughter's in college, so now she's home doing remote classes. And my two young adult children are both working from home now too. And one lives in (laughs) Philly and one lives in California, but they both came home. So it's great to have everyone here, but sometimes having five people working in the house uh, at the same time (laughs) can be a little challenging, but overall we're fine. How about you? Good. Oh, we're, we're doing really well. We also have a full house between uh, my husband and I working full time and our two kids, six and two and a half, but you know, we're, we're making it work and, you know, I'm sure you feel the same. We're, we're both in fortunate, lucky positions to, you know, be able, I think to whether, you know, through this and I, and I know you are doing all we can to support others who, you know, may not be as fortunate. So we're, we're in a good place. So, you know, we've known each other, I think, 14, 15 years or so by now. And, you know, while I feel like I know pretty much everything about your story, um, what I don't actually know is how you got your start in politics. So what kind of led you to this space? So I graduated from University of Chicago Law School, and I moved from Chicago to D.C., and I was working at a law firm, Arnold & Porter. And in part, I chose them as a law firm because a lot of the lawyers there had kind of gone in and out of public service and government, and I thought that might be a good place for me in Washington. So while I was there, after I was there a couple years, one of the partners I worked with was serving as outside general counsel to Bob Kerry's presidential campaign in 1992. And he asked me if I wanted to take a leave of absence and be in-house counsel. And I I did for a couple of reasons. One, I thought it sounded really interesting, but also Bob Carey had been governor of Nebraska when I was a college student at Creighton University. So I I knew of him and liked him. And so, yeah, so I made the move from the law firm to the presidential campaign with like a 66% pay cut, which my parents couldn't understand what I was doing. <laughs> but um, but uh, so I, I started on his campaign. And then when his campaign ended, you know, I went back to the law firm for about two months. And, you know, I couldn't, I wasn't happy doing that. I mean, having been part of kind of something like a campaign where you meet so many people and you're part of a larger community, I felt like going back to the law firm was a little isolating. And um, mm-hmm. luckily, then a couple months after that, they, Bob Carey's office had an opening in his office for a healthcare legislative assistant. And because I had known everybody in the office through the campaign, they disregarded the fact that I didn't have a background in healthcare, nor had I worked on the hill. <laughs> and I got the job. A quick learn, so. a very quick learn. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, starting out when you did in the Senate versus what it looks like today for women. You know, how do you think it's evolved and are women in a position yet of true equality in staff leadership roles? I mean, I'm guessing there were far fewer women serving as chief of staff when you were there in that chamber and in that role. Yeah, there, there weren't very many at that time. Um, and we actually had a bipartisan women chief of staff group because you know, there, there wasn't really enough women to do just the Democrats. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, you know, having been back there some, I, I do think there are more women in leadership roles in the Senate than there used to be um, a lot of women legislative directors and chiefs of staff. And I went back, I was maybe a year ago, um, and met with a bunch of women chief of staffs that were current and former. And it was, it's still a great community. And people, you know, still are in touch with like, 
sharing information and strategies. But, you know, I still think at the end of the day, I, I would say it's equal in terms of overall staff, men and women. But I do think it's still a bit of a challenge for women in the most senior roles, although it has greatly improved. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like with almost any industry, there's still a lot of room to grow, but happy to see there's improvement, but more improvement to come most definitely and hopefully I'm sure. So speaking again of your time in the, the Senate as the chief of staff to both Bob Carey and Bill Nelson, um, you know, yesterday the Senate passed one of the largest financial packages ever um, to help provide relief to businesses and workers and entire industries. And so you know, having work like behind the scenes, how does this process look like? And how does it, you know, tend to play out behind the scenes? You know, as we know, there was some deadlock for a little bit because Dems were kind of seeking more transparency and guarantees for saving worker jobs versus Republicans who are, you know, in essence, looking to give the Trump administration $2 trillion mm-hmm. to hand out to businesses that they're choosing without having to disclose who's getting the money for six months. So, you know, how does that look when you're behind the scenes? I mean, yeah. we, we watch the news, we hear how they debate, but what does that look like behind the scenes? I mean, you know, a lot of that work gets done by the senior staff on the committees. You know, they're the people who know the details of all these, you know, regulations that are currently in place and what might need to be switched. And, and there's a legislative council's office and they do all the bill drafting. So my guess mm-hmm. is that, you know, the committee staffs um, probably put together the initial drafts of what they wanted to see, sent it over to Legislative Council. And then I my guess is that, you know, a majority of it could probably agree to pretty easily by both sides and both sides are going to be, you know, carefully looking at the language. But then you have those, you know, those big picture things that you just mentioned around the fund for the Republicans to help, to help businesses <laughs> and and how to help workers on the Democratic side and help people save their jobs. And some of those kind of at the end of the day have to get filtered up to the senators or the committee staff, I mean, the the Senate chairman, and then they had to obviously, you know, go back and forth with the White House. So it's, I, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of work for everyone involved. And, you know, a lot of the kind of behind the scenes work of the senior staff there probably goes unnoticed, but couldn't get done without them. And and even now in the, you know, in the time of not having a lot of part, uh, bipartisanship and having a situation mm-hmm. where our politics are so polarized, in a, in a lot of cases, the committee staff have worked with each other for a long time. And sometimes the Democrats are in the majority and sometimes the Republicans are. So they go from being in charge to ranking members back and <laughs> forth a few times. But usually those relationships are pretty solid among the staff. And so my guess is the bulk of the work that had to get done was started by them. And like I said, then mm-hmm. you know, the, the trickier political pieces had to uh, you know, be part of a negotiation between the Senate leadership and the White House. Right. Yes. And always a lot of drama that likes to play out publicly. But I guess you know, one silver lining in this is that the Republicans and the Democrats actually work together to get something done, which... We have not seen this right. kind of quick, unprecedented of this of this size and magnitude in years and in years. I mean, probably since you were working in the Senate yourself. Right. Exactly. And you know, that's exactly right. So it is good. Yeah. There hasn't been a lot of legislative accomplishments recently, and it is good that in this time of crisis, at least they can get you know they can work together and get something done. 
Yeah, well, maybe this can be, you know, the starting to actually getting some stuff done moving forward, although I'm not going to bet on it. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, the pandemic has kind of changed everything, and there's not a single industry or demographic or geographic area of the world that hasn't been impacted, and I think this also applies to the presidential race. It's sometimes hard these last several days and a couple of weeks to remember there's actually a presidential race going on. So I know how did you, you know, <laughs> I know it's kind of disappointing, but still it, you know, we have to focus on, you know, the big picture right now, but how do you view this impacting the state of the race in regard to, you know, both the democratic primary as well as, you know, the general in November? So that's, that's a good question because everything's so new and different in the ways of campaigning. They, um, at, you know, as you know, because we were at some events together just, just a couple <laughs> weeks ago, you know, you were still able to be out in person, meeting supporters, talking to other people, strategizing, and now everything has to be, you know, di- uh, digital communication or virtual mm-hmm. meetings and town halls. And I think that's quite a bit different than what people are used to. I think Vice President Biden's done a good job. He's a little studio set up in his house and allows him mm-hmm. to communicate with potential voters and the media and uh, donors, etc. I mean, it's, it's almost like we've forgotten that the primary is still ongoing because everything's pretty much halted, even in terms of discussions. Um, but Senator Sanders is still in the race, and I think has said he's going to stay in at least another month. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see how that works and if anything you know, goes back to any kind of normalcy in campaigning before those primaries at the end of the month. It seems hard to imagine. And then yeah, I think- Yeah, it does. Thought, and it is kind of odd. Yeah. Everyone does- for the most part, does seem to feel like this is like a Biden-Trump race, but we still haven't gotten through the primary. (laughs) I know, I know. And it's, you know, and then with Trump's response to the pandemic, I think, you know, how this ends up going will be, he'll he'll be judged, you know, he might not be being judged on it right now, but Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day- Well, we haven't even peaked yet. It's like- Right. Things are going from- kind of bad to really bad to beyond bad to worse. I mean, yes. we haven't even peaked yet. And yeah, he, he won't be judged by these, you know, daily press conferences and rants and whatnot. And listen, hopefully things will go better than what everyone expects. Right. But, right. Um, but, but yeah, it, it remains to be seen how this is going to um, reflect really truly on him. I think. Yeah. Yeah, but I I do think it really makes the point that leadership matters. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes in previous elections, people had been a little disillusioned with the process and kind of felt like it doesn't matter who's in. And I think we're really Mm -hmm. seeing now it does matter. It really matters because you need to have somebody, you know, your politics can differ, but we need to have people in office that have strong leadership skills and are able to help a country through a crisis. And, you know, we're, we're not seeing much of that right now in terms of the president. Right. Well, and for full disclosure, I am team Biden um, after uh, <laughs> Mayor Pete dropped out and I, I'm, I'm happy to be helping out because I mean, you know, vice president Biden has, I think pretty extraordinary 
leadership abilities and expertise that he has built up over the years to deal with this situation. And you've served the Bidens in multiple roles over the past decade and now as an advisor and surrogate to the campaign. So, you know, you gave us a little bit of background on what you think he's doing, but uh, what, do you, what do you think we can maybe expect to see more of given that all these public events have been canceled and now faced literally changing the way voters can be engaged during this time? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely new and different and challenging. And I think you'll see more, you know, last night you might have seen he was on Jimmy Kimmel. And, yeah. you know, I think the challenge for the campaign is to find new and interesting ways to communicate. I think he's doing daily briefings on what he's learning from his health advisors on coronavirus. He's um, doing, I think, just released a report on how he would solve the economic problems we're facing now. So I think he will continue to provide information to show how he would handle things differently than President Trump. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, how do you get people to pay attention with all of this going on? And I think that's where like going on shows like The View or Jimmy Kimmel is smart because you kind of right. meet meet voters where they are right now. And a lot of them are home. You They're know, at home watching. Watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kind of feeding into those existing shows and opportunities, I think makes a lot of sense. And I know, like he said yesterday, he doesn't want to take a chance on anyone's health or, you know, not following the guidance of the public health officials to, you know, stay distant. And he was even saying like his grandkids come over, but they sit out on the porch and he's up on the deck. Uh, They're on a picnic table in the backyard and they can talk, but they can't, you know, be close to one another. That's also important, you know, to model good behavior in these things. And, And I think the vice president takes that very seriously. Right. Oh, no doubt. And it comes across very clearly. I mean, I think people are yearning and get maybe a little more hopeful seeing him because it's such a stark contrast to what we're seeing. Right. Day I know. Day. Coming out of the White House, we need more of that kind of leadership. So I think um, it's great to have him out there, you know, as, as, as much as possible in settings where people can have a chance to connect and, and get a sense of that leadership of what it might look like. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> In what our future. Your choice. Yeah. Right, right. You know, I was going to say that, you know, I, I think another thing about this crisis, um, it's, it's really starting to help show the, the really deep cracks that we have in our society, whether it's healthcare system, our economy, the widening inequities facing marginalized people in our country. So do you think that maybe in some way, if there is a silver lining that this, crisis, um, especially given the work that you've done with groups like the One Organization and Tusk Philanthropies, do you think this might help to change the narrative or conversation in some way around these really deep-seated inequities that exist um, yes, throughout our I, society? I do. I think, I think one of the things that this crisis has shown is that everyone's impacted by these kind of things. It doesn't matter what your race or ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your job is, you know, and we can only solve it by everybody working together. And I think that's one, you know, one kind of positive thing that maybe that kind of seeps into people's heads that just because you're set or, you know, things are working for you uh, doesn't mean that the society is working for everyone. And if we're not all responsible right. in some way for one another, it's, you know, it can turn into a very bad situation. I think that, you know, one of the things that is really hit home is 
how difficult it is for people who have jobs that, you know, they don't get paid if they don't go. So maybe, maybe some of the rules around paid sick leave or paid time off for childcare, some of that might start becoming more real to people because they see it now day to day, what it might be like for their their neighbor who, you know, who works in a job where they only get paid when they go and look Mm -hmm. what happens, you know, and how that's going to have, you know, a a potentially negative impact economically on that family and the wider community. So maybe people will start to see that we need to make sure that everybody has an adequate safety net and be able to you know, and, and the, uh, the item of healthcare, you know, I think I mentioned my first job with Bob Carey and his Senate office was mm-hmm. um, healthcare reform. And so I've been through that fight, which we didn't win. And then in the White House, when Obamacare was launched, and that, you know, has had challenges with repeals and court rulings and things trying to implement it. It's, it's a very, very difficult policy issue but yet you can see right now how important it is that people have adequate health care for themselves and their families so that if you do get sick, you can, you're can you not afraid to go to the hospital. You're not afraid to try to get the test, you know, and it's it's just one of those things. It's, it's really not fair to individuals to put that burden on one person because they don't yeah. have uh, access to employer health care or something else, you know, and it's, I don't know. I, I'm hoping that you know, and if one person isn't healthy, then they can make other people not healthy. So even if you don't want to do it because you think it's the right thing to do in terms of a fair mm-hmm. society, just do it for yourself then, you know, and, right, and maybe, right. you know, maybe we finally get, get people to understand that we're all in this together. Exactly. That is like what it is at the end of the day. It's like, <clears throat> this is connecting everyone. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how poor you are, where you live, what you do with your life, personally, professionally, like everyone is going to be touched by this um, for worse. So I hope there's something that we can take away from all of this that can, can help us start thinking about those who, you know, don't have some of the safety nets that we do. And, and how can we do something about that moving forward? So to segue into our next recording here, I, I wanted to, to, to bring up again what your day job is. And it does seem, even though it wasn't long ago, it does seem like light years ago <laughs> that people might remember that a voting app running the Democratic Party caucus in Iowa failed quite spectacularly. What would the mobile voting project maybe have done differently? And, you know, how can we help assure voters that these kinds of technical failures really shouldn't curb our interest in voting mobile, which really does empower um, every way, everyone in, in new ways? Yeah, it's so I have to say that was a pretty bad morning the day after the Iowa caucus. I'd been helping the Biden campaign and was in a tunnel <laughs> for two weeks <laughs> and uh, woke up that morning to like not great results for, for Vice President Biden in terms of caucus goers. And also, you know, this this app had failed and the app was actually just a app. It have to do with the core function of voting but you know that's not how you know people don't understand the different technologies that might be used exactly in the they just like, feel like oh oh it broke working. yeah it didn't work and so so that morning before i could get in the car to drive back to chicago 
I stayed at the Airbnb for several more hours, quickly putting together a memo and a chart that showed the difference between what we do and what the Iowa app did, both in function, but also <laughs> in testing and auditing and using something before you, you put in a major election. <laughs> so uh, that document had to get prepared and sent out very, very quickly that morning so that you know both to media, election officials, and others that were interested in mobile voting to see, you know, so we could we could demonstrate what the difference was. I mean, at that time we had a pilot just starting in Seattle and King County Conservation District. And so we quickly had to get that to them so they could put it up on their websites. So yeah, it definitely, um, it definitely the big lesson is, you know, you have to, you start small, you have to test it, you have to retest it, you have to audit it. And I don't think any of those things happened in Iowa. Right, clearly. So on that note, I want to say we came to the end of our first, our, our first of the twofer. And if you want to learn more about Tusk Philanthropy's work on the mobile voting project, you'll have to tune in to part two to listen more to Sheila Nix on our next episode of the broadcast, episode 26. And I want to thank you, Sheila, for making the time to share some great insights on the presidential race, the process, politics, women, and their roles in this industry, so to speak. And I look forward to having you on for part two of this conversation where we are going to focus on mobile voting and what it all means. As always, the broadcast is brought to you by Sea Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm bringing passion and veteran experience to the help our clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsors of all per the insurance people and our podcast host, at least the <laughs> old normal, uh, 1871. Broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Bennett's Fumi Chipsy Project. To learn more about these strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at C-Strategies, C-H-I. So come. Let the walls 